It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. And the Orioles have won the game. They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy. They're jumping on each other. One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see. And welcome to it. Thanks for being with us here on Orioles Magic, the podcast. Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. And Jeff, uh, I don't want to take up too much time in our intro to the guest today because our guest uh, is, is known for being um, verbose, I'm going to say. And we covered a lot of ground. I want to call it the actually definitive Jim Palmer podcast interview. That is what our special guest and is who our special guest is today. I mean, there's so much stuff, you could break it up into two parts, really, if you wanted to. But we covered a ton of ground from the 1983 World Series to best Orioles team to what he learned from his time working with, with Robin Roberts to his time spent in the booth with Howard Cosell, as well as Earl Weaver at one point. They not only were on the same baseball team, they also were on the same broadcast team. So, so much fun, and uh, it was one that I really enjoyed. And also his uh, moment and how much money he got paid for being on uh, the Naked Gun movie, one of my all-time favorite movies. In fact, I re- recently rewatched it on on Netflix. I mean, I probably I probably watch that movie once every few years because it's it's that funny to me still after all these years. Uh, but uh, Palmer does have that appearance with several other famous broadcasters. We talk about Chuck Thompson. We talk about being Sandy Koufax in the World Series. It's really an enjoyable conversation with uh, Baltimore baseball royalty. Uh, number 22, Jim Palmer. And with us today, a very special guest on Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite. It's none other than tw- number 22, Baltimore baseball royalty and the Hall of Famer, Jim Palmer. Jim, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be with you. How are you and your family doing during this time? Well, we're good. Uh, you know, I had I actually had spinal fusion on my back uh, uh, back in January, so I thought I'd be ready for opening day, except there hasn't been an opening day. I'm certainly going to be ready for opening day if we have one in what I'm reading, hearing, maybe, hopefully, in, in, in July. So, uh, you know, fine. My wife's got a home furnishing store that she was planning on closing, so we came down to, uh, so anybody wants 50% off of uh, furniture, just call, you know. Uh, go on your go online in Island Home uh, Palm Beach, and there's a lot of really good furniture. So no, uh, we're we're going to liquidate the store over the next couple of weeks, and you know just see what's going on with baseball. Well, Jim, uh, we've been taking this time going back and talking to some Orioles legends and some great moments and games in Baltimore baseball history. And our highlight today, among the things we'll talk about, is Game Three of the 1983 World Series, a game. Uh, where you were the winning pitcher in a World Series game, which wasn't too unusual in your career. Uh, you come in, though, out of the bullpen, relieving Mike Flanagan. Uh, you, the Orioles win uh, a tight ball game in front of 65,000 fans at the Vet. Uh, what's your recollection of that night in Philadelphia? 
Well, it was the first night, you know, we, we lost what I think two to one. John Denny of uh, uh, Phillies beat us in game one. Scotty McGregor pitched back. He pitched great in both the division series and, and would eventually win game five. Um, but every time he would pitch, we wouldn't score a whole lot of runs. And uh, I was sitting in the bullpen the first night and I'm saying, you know, this is great. We're going to get a World Series here if we win. I think it ended up being somewhere around $65,000. And if we lose, it'll probably be in the $40,000 range. And I said, I'm sitting 380 feet away from home plate. I have to look through plexiglass, and there's a lot of people paying a lot more money sitting behind me. So I was just really happy. You know, if you go back and look at that year, I, you know, I had a major kind of a, a the quadratus laborum, which is a major stabilizing muscle of your back. I kind of, I, I tweaked it in spring training. The doctor said, do what you can do. You know, he didn't tell me it was a major stabilizing muscle of your back. It was before MRIs. So I tried to pitch early on. Uh, Scotty McGregor said, it looks like they're stabbing you uh, in the uh, back with, with a knife. And I said, that's exactly the way it feels. So the whole year, you know, it was a great year. The Orioles, I think, won 98 games. White Sox, actually, who we beat in the division uh, series, won 99. But um, it was a year where a lot of guys, you know, Mike Boddicker was like 25, 26. I think he won 16 games. Scotty won 18. Flanning was hurt a little bit, was 12. Uh, Storm Davis won, I think, 13 games at age 21. So it was a year where I think you saw why the Orioles from really 65 all the way to 84 when I was with the Orioles always seemed to have winning teams is because guys stepped up and did a great job, especially the pitching staff. And then, you know, if you looked at the, um, you know, if you looked at offensively, you know, Cal was the MVP, even though Eddie's numbers were as good or maybe better. Um, John Lowenstein and Gary Renicky, you know, everybody talked about, I think if you were a Yankee fan growing up like I was, how Casey Stangle used to platoon players. Well, how about, you know, Earl Weaver? You know, you, you had something, I think, uh, Gary Renicky hit 19 home runs. John Lowenstein hit 15 home runs in left field. That's 34 home runs. They drove in 124 runs between the two of them. That's a pretty good platoon in left field. So we just had a really good ball club. It was a mature ball club. Uh, you know, we lost the last day of the season in 1982. You know, you had a new manager and, you know, in the fact that, you know, you had Joe Altobelli managing for the first time. So I think a lot of the things that, you know, Earl Weaver had done. And then the other thing is, I think almost everybody on the ball club said, we're going to show that we can uh, win without Earl Weaver. I didn't have a whole lot to do with it because I only, I think, got 11 or 12 starts. But it was just one of those years where it just seemed like everything came together. Were you surprised that Earl didn't stay? Because it was basically the same team from 82. No, you know, it's funny, the, uh, we, you know, I ended up losing to Don Sutton on the last day of the year. We came from about eight back in 82. And, you know, Earl, all, all, all year long, Earl had said, hey, you know, I'm retiring, I'm retiring. So Earl was not into team meetings. I mean, he did not like to have team meetings unless he was really angry. Well, here we are. I mean, you know, we, we, we win, the, what, Friday and Saturday. We score like 9, 10, 11 runs in each of the games. It all comes down to Sunday. And Right before the game, he calls a meeting, and Richie Dower, our second baseman, says, no, don't tell us, don't tell us you're not going to retire. And it kind of breaks, you know, we ended up losing anyway. But I, I think a lot of us did think that Earl might change his mind. But, um, you know, as it turned out, I think, you know, you got to understand, you know, Earl got one three-year contract. I think it was 80, 81, and 82. Every other year from 1968, when he took over at the All-Star break, he was on one-year deals. Talk about some pressure. Talk about – I mean, now we had really good players and, and, you know, one in almost all those years or at least we're in contention. So I just think Earl had, had enough. And, you know, when he came back to, I think, managing, what, 80, 85 and 6, uh, somebody said, why are you doing that? He said, green fees for the rest of my life. Because I think Earl just wanted to go back down to South Florida and play golf. Uh, going back to the 
83 series in the synergy in 66 at 20, uh, you beat Sandy Koufax in his last major league start in the world series. And then obviously uh, Carlton didn't start that game three uh, in 83, but he was the losing pitcher. The synergy of that uh, to best two uh, hall of fame southpaws actually, you know, some almost 20 years apart in the world series. It's pretty interesting looking back at that. Well, you know, Koufax didn't really, Pitch poorly. Willie Davis dropped a couple of fly balls, picked up the second one, threw it in the stands. We got some early runs um, because, I mean, it, it's, it was such an interesting World Series if you go back to 66. We come, you know, we're staying up the Continental Hotel. It was owned by Gene Autry, who owned the Angels. And he was actually there when we got in. Uh, I think the first game was on Tuesday, but Sunday night we got in and Gene Autry is in, in, in the lobby, you know, because he was an American League team owner. And I mean, I knew him, you know, I knew him and Roy Rogers and all that growing up as a kid, you know, that's, that's, that's what you used to watch on television. So we're going out to the, uh, to play the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium and you go down Sunset Boulevard and back then it was what laugh in, would you believe? And it said, would you believe Dodgers four straight on one of those real estate signs, a set of three bedrooms and two baths and a pool. It said, would you believe Dodgers four straight? Well, you know, Frank and Brooks hit home runs in the first inning. I'm going to pitch the next day. I mean, I'm not scared, but I know that I have to pitch well because Koufax is Koufax. I mean, he had a 195 ERA. He was, you know, I don't know, pitched 10, 11 shutouts, whatever. A typical year for Sandy in the 60s. So, um, anyway, you know, we hit the home runs. Dave McNally struggles. Uh, Mo Jabowski comes in, strikes out 11 and six and two-thirds innings and kind of set the tone for the rest of the, of the World Series. And when we got back on the bus and went back to the Continental Hotel, that same side, would you believe Orioles four straight? So for that to happen, Willie Davis had to drop the fly balls. I had to pitch my first shutout in the major leagues. You know, it just happened to be in a World Series. Um, you know, we got six runs, mainly because of the errors. I think four of them were unearned. And then we won games three and four back in Baltimore. Wally Bunker, who had been Rookie Pitcher of the Year in 1964, the year before I got to the Orioles, uh, then got hurt. You know, he won, wins one nothing. Paul Blair hits a home run off of Claude Osteen. And then Frank Robinson hits, hits another home run off of Don Drysdale, which is what he and Brooks did in game one. And McNally, who had struggled, you know, pitches a nine-inning nine shutout. I think the, the Dodgers hit 125 for the World Series. And it kind of, you know, I mean, I was kind of in shock. Uh, mainly because, number one, we beat Kovacs. Number two, I had never experienced this type of thing. I mean, I grew up in New York you know, listening and watching, you know, either in between geography and history, listening on my transistor radio, what the Yankees were doing, or watching in black and white television. So this was something new, and it was pretty exciting time. And, you know, so starting in 66, I think most of us thought that because Frank Robinson was there, because we had Boog Powell and Blair and Davey Johnson and had a pretty good ball club, that we would be going to a lot of World Series. What is the significance of, of winning World Series games in three different decades? What does that mean to you? Well, I mean, 1983, I was just happy to win a game because um, I had to go to the minor <laughs> leagues. You know, Mike Flanagan, I think well, he was 12 and four that year. I mean, I was five and four. Um, they said, listen, if you want to be on the major league roster during the postseason, uh, and they asked Mike and myself, and I said, I'll, I'll go. I mean, why, I don't care how many games you won. Why wouldn't you, when you knew kind of, I kind of, kind of knew what the, the picture was. Um, you know, I had helped mentor Flanny and Scotty McGregor and Storm Davis and Mike Bopper and all that. And at just as Robin Roberts had done it for me. And I knew, you know, Hagerstown's not that, that far from Baltimore. 
So why not go up there? John Hart, the, the irony, John Hart was the manager who would go on to, you know, be the great general manager, I think, what, of uh, Cleveland and then Texas Rangers and so on down in Atlanta. Uh, so uh, I was pretty comfortable. Um, my arm was getting better. You know, I mean, when you hurt your back and you, you know, I just, I had some, I had 239 pitches in a game after I hadn't pitched for two and a half months. No, no going to the minors, none of this stuff. They thought I had torn my rotator cuff. I said, well, let's go to the bullpen, inject my rotator cuff, see if it still hurts. Because uh, I think I had tendonitis. Well, they injected my rotator cuff. It, it still hurt. I said, I could have been 20 years old and throw 139 pitches after two months off. And I think Myron would have been that way. So I needed to, you know, I went up to Boston. I saw Arthur Pappas, who was you know, head of orthopedics at uh, Mass General, also part owner of the Red Sox. And then I just tried to get back to help the ball club. And as it turned out, um, you know, on my 38th birthday, uh, that was that was game three, to have a ball go through Yvonne uh, De Jesus's legs. I just happened to be at the right time in the right place. And I had, I had probably pitched in two weeks. So it wasn't exactly, I wasn't really on my game like I was in 1966. Uh, we had Scotty McGregor on recently, and he said that Jim Palmer was sabermetrics before sabermetrics, that if, you know, we came out of a game or out of an inning uh, and we didn't throw the right pitch and the right count to the right batter, Jim Palmer was there to greet us to let us know. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound like the last dance where Jordan was doing what he did. You know, even though our language is fairly uh, similar at some points, especially if you played for Earl Weaver, uh, not for Joe Alcantelli in 83. But, uh, no, I mean, that's really what it was about. I mean, it, it, you know, we used to pitch pretty much every fourth day. So the days you weren't pitching, you'd sit in the corner of the dugout. you got to understand, um, the Orioles had 10, 10, you know, 10-man staffs back then. So you had 15 position players. Now you have 12, 13, so you don't have as many. Well, you'd get in the corner. Terry Crowley, who went on to be one of the great batting coaches and a great, you know, pinch hitter deluxe, you know, went over to Cincinnati after he was with us early and then would come back, won two world championships there. Merv Redden, who went on to have a you know, nice career as a batting instructor. Chico Simone, Kurt Moden, who would lead the International League in batting average. Davey May went on to hit 26 home runs for the Brewers one year. He'd lead them in RBIs. We had a lot of voices in that corner of the dugout, and we would actually watch the game and kind of do what maybe they do with computers now. And I mean, I, you know, I mean, I sit, sat in the bullpen when I was 19 years old. I roomed Robin Roberts, who had 270 wins, and I didn't have any. He was 38. Sat in the bullpen with Harvey Haddix and Stu Miller, one of the great relief pitchers of all time. Eddie Fisher, Sherm Lawler had been the catcher on one of those, you know, the great White Sox teams in the late 50s. He played the Dodgers in the World Series at, at the Coliseum in 59, they, where they used to have like 80,000 people come to see him play. So I, I, I you know, I mean, I, they called me uh, brash because I asked a lot of questions. I just figured I needed to kind of learn what, what really the game was played. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at the Orioles from the year I got there, 65 all the way through 84, they had the best winning percentage in baseball. And I think a lot of it had to do with the continuity, the mentoring, um, you know, I mean, I didn't yell at guys, you know, it was, it was corrective, supportive. Hey, this is, you know, and they did it to me because I, you know, I, I lost 152 games in the big leagues. So it wasn't like I, you know, was a 400 no, you know? So I think we all kind of, um, you know, played off each other, you know, and the great thing is whether it was Coyar McNally, you know, he might want to saw young, should have won another 139 games in seven years for the Orioles. McNally won 20 games four times. Um, it was a great comfort to pitch on those staffs because if I didn't win on Monday, I knew one of the other guys 
whether it was Scotty or Flanny or Storm Davis or in, you know, in the 80s, Mike Boddicker went on to have a really great postseason that year, won 16 games that year, would pick up the slack. What were some of the things that you learned, some of the more important things that you learned from somebody like a Robin Roberts and that you then passed on to the Cuellars, the Boddickers, the McGregors? Well, Robin said the best pitch in baseball. Now, <laughs> if we get into analytics here in the, uh, you know, the, the 2020 season, they probably say this is not the case. But Robin Robin had 270 wins, as I mentioned. He was trying to win 300. He would end up, I think, with 284 or 286. He said the best pitch in baseball is a fastball. And you have a really, really good one. And I hope you're smart enough to know that. He said, you got a fastball you can throw for a strike. You got one you can throw for a ball. You got a breaking ball you can throw for a strike. You got a breaking ball you can throw for a ball. He said, you got a change up that you use every once in a while just to let them know that you have a third pitch. And um, that would be about Johnny Carson had just ended. It would be about one o'clock. And he would say, kid, you know, I'm 38, you're 19. He said, let's talk about, let's talk more about baseball when we have breakfast tomorrow after I get a good night's sleep. So, you know, I learned from Robin. Um, you know, Sammy Ellis was pitching coach for the Orioles. And uh, he said, yeah, I live around the corner from, uh, from Robin down in uh, Tampa, you know, the Tampa Bay area. And I said, yeah, he said, uh, he said, one time I asked him, I said, who hit the most home runs off you? You know, I know Nettles hit nine home runs off me. Jim Rice hit nine home runs off me. And Robin said to Sammy, he said, you know, some guy hit 19. And Sammy Ellis said, and dude, won over 20 games one year with Cincinnati. He says, what do you mean some guy? He says, oh, I forgot his name. They were all solos. So one of the things I learned, you're going to, especially nowadays, I mean, who knows what kind of uh, baseball we're going to have in, in 2020 if we play. Is it going to be the rabbit ball from last year? You play pitching Camden Yards, you're going to throw home runs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Orioles threw, what, 305, set the all-time record. There were 500 or 600 more home runs than there were the year before. And there were more home runs, well, more in 2017 and 18, but it's gone up pretty much every year. So one of the things Robbins told me, hey, it's all right to walk, guys, but you better know you can get the guy out behind him. And sometimes you have to do that in close games. But I think a rule of thumb. And, you know, and then as it turned out, I, I one of my godfather of my oldest daughter, Jamie, was Dick Hall, who was a marvelous pitcher for the Orioles. Turkey, he was 6'6". He was the third baseman that the Pirates drafted and then the Orioles – you know, he turned into a pitcher and became a great reliever for the Orioles over the years. You know, wonderful man. And I used to run with him because he was a very good athlete. And a lot of the other guys in the, when I got to the Orioles in 1965 ran on their own. You didn't play for Cal Ripken Sr. and run on your own. You know, you, you, you ran as a team, you know, and that's what we did when I got to Baltimore. Harry Pekin was there and then eventually George Bamberger. You know, Cuellar would pitch a one-hitter and we'd be out in the morning track to run our 18 foul line to foul lines and shag for an hour because we didn't want to be anybody to be in better shape. And George Bamberger would say, where's Mike? And I said, oh, his hips bothering me. He said, wait a minute, boys. And then he would go into the locker room and get him. <laughs> and he goes, nobody <laughs> runs, everybody runs. So, I, you know, conditioning, trying to control as many things as you can. And I think, you know, Scotty, I don't know, I'm sure he didn't mention this, but Scotty said, I learned my lesson when I got traded uh, to the Orioles after the, you know, 76 season. And I came to spring training in 1977. You do not come to Miami. and be a pitcher on the Oriole team if you don't come to spring training in shape. It is, you know, because we used to – I wanted to go to the beach with my kids. I wanted to go play tennis or I wanted to go play golf. So we got it over with in a hurry. I mean, we ran those 18 foul line to foul lines without stopping. 
So if you want to, you know, and Boddicker was in great shape. Storm Davis, Flanny was a great basketball player. Scotty, Scotty learned and, you know, became, you know, won 20 games, won 18 games. So I just think, you know, the camaraderie of, of, of kind of doing it, uh, you know, I think, and starters are a little bit different. Obviously, nowadays, maybe bullpens play a different role. But I think back then, the starters in the dugout, we, we stuck up for each other because we knew we were going to pick each other's up. While we're on the subject, to the modern day of pitching, Jim, uh, we obviously know they're not going to make as many starts and uh, pitching staffs will be more specialized, especially in the bullpen. And, and uh, what kind of quantifies a good start as far as innings has changed dramatically over the years. But as far as pitching itself, whether it's mechanical or style or, or, or what is a necessary thing to do well, how has it changed and evolved over the last two decades in your mind? Uh, and even going back further to your era of pitching. Well, I don't think it really has changed that much. I mean, you know, now, of course, you know, you, you talk about spin rate, how the ball spins, uh, you know, what kind of spin rate do you have on your fastball? What kind of spin rate do you have on your curveball? I think they look at those numbers. But if you have a bad windup, how do you throw it over? I mean, how do you stay out of the middle of the plate? Um, I mean, you know, obviously last year you could make a good pitch and it could end up being a home run. You know, 77, the ball went 18 feet farther for every 360 feet. But they did a test. They never – they don't do that here in 2019, 2018, 2017. I think they could do a compression test because the ball's going farther. Um, but I don't think it's – I don't really think it's changed that much. At the end of the day, I mean, it's nice to know tendencies and it's nice to know – I mean, we know, you know, the guy is a guy, you know, a high ball hitter, low ball hitter. Does he like the ball – an inner half of the plate, you know, what's he do? You, you know, visually, you talked about what we did in between games. Well, you're watching video and you're watching players. I mean, I never – I may go in and, and, you know, get something to drink when our guys were hitting, but I always watched the opposition because I knew I had to pitch against them. So I, I just think now it's, all the information is great, but at the end of the day, if you can't repeat your windup, I mean, you can say, well, you know, I have a good spin rate, but, you know, I, I mean, I, I look like well, there's a guy, uh, Ryan Presley. He was hurt last year, but he went over to went over to the Astros. You know, he threw 95, great curve, you know, really good curveball, except he never threw it over in Minnesota. He goes to Houston. You get Brett Strom, who has been around forever, was a you know major league pitcher. All of a sudden, still has the same spin rate. You know, he maybe changes his windup a little bit so he can repeat it, and all of a sudden you you have somebody. So I think the spin rates, and you look at the numbers, uh, and you know. You know, I think now they take pitches away for some of our minor leaguers. And I said, well, why do you do that? And they said, well, because we look at the spin rate and we then we look at spin rates of other guys that have similar styles or similar spin, spin rates. And we go, well, this guy's not successful. So maybe, you know, one of our Oriole minor league pitchers is not going to be successful. But then again, does he have a deceptive windup? Do you see the ball? You know, there's just so many variables in pitching. I think it's it's – probably easier to quantitate what a guy can do and what he can't do. But at the end of the day, what happens when you go out on the mound? You know, I mean, what, what does your blood pressure go up? How about your heartbeat? You know, I mean, you don't know those kind of things. And I think at some point they're going to probably have little things on your wrist. that will tell you that. And you go, Oh no, it's blood, blood, blood pressures. At, you know, at, at two thirty or two seventy. you know, we're out of here. <laughs> it's time right. to take it out, you know, right. it's not going to be that kind of thing. So I don't know, you know, I, I, I just think it's, they're all great tools and, and I, and I like them, but you know, it's kind of like now we got the hitters, they got the K vest and we got launch angles and we got all that. 
but can you look for pitches? I mean, you know, I looked at, oh, let's go to 83. Eddie and Cal. You know, Eddie, Eddie, it's almost like Eddie Murray knew what was coming. You know, Cal was one of the great, great guest hitters. You know, Mike Wedd, who pitched for the Angels, had a great curveball. Well, Cal would go up there, and that great curveball wasn't that great when he'd look for it. And then it'd be a three-run home run. You know, everybody would wonder why. I mean, I watched Eddie Murray when he came up to, what, 77, batting practice down in uh, spring training in Miami. And I go, this kid can't hit. And then the game started. And then I saw, oh, wait a minute. He has an idea of what's coming. You know, not to mention being a switch hitter, not to mention to be, you know, hand-eye coordination, which is why he had over 500 home runs and 3,000 hits, and there's only five guys on that list. And a couple of them you can't even count because they had a little bit of help. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about Cal at the very beginning of his career? Well, I, he was four years old, and we couldn't get him off the field in Aberdeen, South Dakota. I was, I was 18, and he was, he was four, and he wanted to – we got to go, Cal, get away. You're going to get hurt out here. No. Um, you know, I mean, he started – I don't remember. I, I, I mean, I re, you know, I've read that he went four for 55 or whatever. I, I don't really remember that. I mean, I know that he came and worked out. Uh, you know, I'd read the scouting report. Somebody said, yeah, he's going to be the next Jim Palmer. Thank God he was – third baseman that turned into a shortstop so he could go to the Hall of Fame with, you know, 428 home runs and over 3,000 hits and played in 2,630 whatever, two consecutive games. Um, he was just a great athlete. You know, we used to go down, you know, we used to go play basketball and all that. So, I I mean, I, I, I had the scouting report. His dad, you know, dad had, you know, Cal was, Cal Sr. was about half Cal Sr. junior size. He was a very little guy, but talk about tough. But they all, they both loved the games. Everybody used to say that when Cal Senior would go do a, um, um, you know, a, a, a clinic or something like that in the off season, uh, Billy would find something else to do, but Cal would, you know, Cal Junior would always go with his dad because he didn't see him that much. So I mean, I, you know, I, I, I I'm a Ripken fan from the, the day because I, I remember the first meeting that, you know, we're in Aberdeen, South Dakota. We're going to live in a basement. We're going to make four hundred and fourteen dollars after taxes, three dollars a day meal money, no cell phones, no credit cards. You know, we're going to go on a nine-day trip, and they'll give us $27, and we're going to figure out a way to kind of live on that. But we had a meeting where Cal said, listen, he said, um, <laughs> and I remember the meeting because he, I walked everybody. I, you know, I walked 130 and 129 innings in A-ball. I mean, I was 11-3. and three. I struck my guys out because they didn't hit the ball, but I walked. I was an equal walker. I would walk anybody in the lineup, pitchers or whatever. He said, and he had a, he had a dollar fine for any – opposing pitcher you ever walk well it didn't matter if it was a pitcher or the number four hitter I could walk him I mean this is what I did at age 18 so the first I remember the meeting he said you know we're not we won 14 in a row in spring training we beat Earl Weaver's double AL Myra team down in Thomasville Georgia he says we're not having that fine I said because I mean I didn't make enough money to be paying I would have that would have been 130 dollars I would have had to pay for walks and all that you know whatever so he said listen we're never going to let anybody outwork us we're going to come to the ballpark and have fun which means to win there are no such things as shortcuts and you know so I learned that and then probably the most important thing when you know now we're talking about getting back and you got the owners saying we want you to take this share and the players are saying well we're not used to that and blah 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 he pointed to the empty stands and he said the only reason we are playing this game is because of the people to come to see us play. So I hope that the owners and the players here in 2020 understand that and, and think about that. Uh, Jim, we, we, for whatever reason, we've talked a lot about Mike Mussino on this podcast. Uh, I mean, there's obvious reasons. Why would involved in a lot of the big games. <laughs> we were specifically uh, looking back at 
uh, one of my favorite nights in Orioles history, and I know you were part of the call of this game, and that's the 28 batter performance against the Indians, arguably in the top, you know, five best games ever pitched in Orioles history in a regular season. And, and Mike's certainly in the conversation for second or third best pitcher in club history. Uh, we asked Bill Ripken this, and we asked Rick Sutcliffe this. Uh, when do they know about a guy like that, that he could go uh, to be in the Hall of Fame? When you first saw Mike, was he one of those guys you identified as uh, someone that could be that good for that long? Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't think you ever can, can anticipate longevity, but he, you know, I think some of the things you look at, uh, you know, it's funny, when, when I played Babe Ruth uh, ball, I got beat by a guy by the name of Steve Carrier from Northern California, 2 nothing. I walked 18 on Monday, came back on Wednesday, and got beat by Northern California, 2 nothing. And he and I became best friends. We drove to spring training, and he struck out 20 out of 27 in, in A-ball in Fox Cities. I went to Aberdeen with uh, Cal Sr. And everybody said they kept me in the big leagues the next year because not that he was as good as I was. They didn't like his windup. Well, you had to like Mike. Messina's windup. He threw the ball downhill as well as anybody. You know, he's very athletic. You know, three sports, uh, sport uh, star in in high school, I believe. Um, you know, change up to look like his fastball. So you know that makes your fastball even better. He could pitch to both sides of the plate. Came up a little cutter. Had two knuckle curveballs. You know, won seven goals, six or seven gold gloves. What didn't he do well? And now the only problem that he had to deal with was Camden Yards. You know, they, I mean, I don't, you guys, if you know this, but when, when he was a potential free agent, they actually moved the fences back, what, 10 or 12 feet. And that didn't work. You know, all they needed to do is give him $88 million and they would have kept him. They didn't have to move the fences back. I know it didn't cost $88 million, but he was a marvelous pitcher and he could hold runners and he was smart. Um, You know, whether, you know, he ended up winning more games than I did. And, uh, you know, maybe, didn't pitch as many innings because you didn't, weren't required to do that. But he was a marvelous pitcher. I always said that when I did the games. And the other thing is, you know, when you end up in the Hall of Fame, it's not like you didn't have bad games. And he probably made his a quick a, adjustment when he had a bad inning uh, as any guy I ever saw. And, you know, he'd give up. And, you know, you try and never – I think one of the cardinal rules as a starting pitcher is you don't want to have big innings. You try to stay away from them. How do you do that? You don't walk people. Well, he didn't walk any people. Try to keep the ball in the ballpark. Camping yards, that's not always possible. Routine fly balls. I mean, he hit a 370-foot fly ball at the warning track in left field. It's a home run. You know, last year you probably hit it about 350, and it sailed out of here because the ball was so live. So, But, he, you know, he, he dealt with that. He also pitched in the steroid era or the PED or however you want to describe it, and it didn't seem to bother him. And, uh, you know, the advantage that he had, as I did, is he pitched for, at least in most cases, good ball clubs, and that certainly helps. And um, – you know, again, I think, you know, again, you can't ever anticipate longevity, but he did so many things well. And wind-ups have a lot to do with, with your health. And, you know, he didn't throw a lot of sliders. You know, he's more of a, like I said, a, a little cutter that he came up with. And um, I just think that helped for his longevity. But he was he, he could pitch in any year. Is there a pitcher or two on the Orioles in the time that you were playing that whenever he was out on the mound, you maybe enjoyed watching? this individual or two more than, than anybody else? Well, it started with Mill Pappas. You know, I saw Mill Pappas when the Orioles came up to Aberdeen, which was a big deal when you're, they come to play your, your A team. Uh, they thought they were going to have thunderstorms in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and, and Cal Ripken Sr. went to the tire deal and got all the, you know, what, the retreads. And they got, and we didn't have a tarp, but he got canvases and all that just in case it rained. And Mill Pappas started that game, and so did Steve Barber. 
you know, Steve Barber's first 20-game winner. Milt Pappas didn't want to win 20, didn't want to win 20 because he didn't think that was important. But Milt could pitch. I mean, a lot of people think, hey, you know, Frank Robbins was an old 30. Well, he wasn't. We found that out when he won the Triple Crown, you know, his first year with the Orioles. But the, the, the Reds got a real good pitcher. Milt would win over 200 games. He just didn't feel necessary if he had a lead in the sixth or seventh inning to, to pitch any longer. He was happy being 15, 17, 15, and 8 you know, 16 and nine, and he was able to do that. So in that era, you know, and then, you know, we, we traded for Mike Coyar, you know, and Dave McNally with that era. I mean, Mac won 20 games. He was first 20-game winner after um, <laughs> after Steve Barber. And I laugh because, you know, he, he won, like, the last 12, 12 games, I think, in 1968. I was hurt that year. And I think he got a $20,000 raise or a $15,000 raise. So he set the tone. If we won 20 games, we could go in and ask for a fifteen dollars or $20,000 raise. Didn't mean you got it, but we could actually ask for that. So Mac was always one of my favorites. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Mike Ware won 139 games in seven years for the Orioles. He would, you know, Earl Weaver said he didn't like cold weather, and he would yank him early, and Mike would go to one end of the dugout and call him all kinds of names. And Earl was already calling him names before he went out to get him. But then if you needed him to pitch with two days rest, down the pennant stretch, Mike Cuellar was your guy. So, you know, Cuellar and then, of course, you know, one of my best friends and, you know, obviously the tragic suicide was Mike Flanagan. You know, we – Mike – I mean, if you look at his first year, I think he was in two and two and eight or two and nine. We're going up to Boston and we're sitting in – we used to sit in the bulkhead and he looked at me and he says, I don't think Earl Weaver has any faith in me. But he was two and eight, but I, he pitched really well, or two and nine. I mean, low ERA, just no run support. So I'm going to the bathroom the next night, and the manager's office is right across from the bathroom, and Earl comes in, and he's going to the bathroom, and I said, you know, I can't tell you the language, but I said, you know, Mike, Mike Flanagan doesn't think you have any faith in him, and he goes, something faith? I put the guy, in another expletive, in the lineup every fourth day, and it's two and nine. And I said, Earl, I don't care. I said, he doesn't think you have any calls. I said, call him in, lie to him. Do whatever you need to do because this is kind of – I mean, you go back to what we used to talk about. I said, if you're going to put him in the lineup every four days, fake it. I don't care. If you don't have anybody else, go in there. So he goes to the Boston Globe. And um, he get, Cliff Keen was a writer, you know, Cliff and Claff. And, you know, they loved Weaver because he was always good for a quote. And so um, he goes, Mike Flanagan is going to be a winning pitcher uh, in the big leagues. He ended up 15 to 10, guys. Two and nine to 15 and 10. Do you know, have any idea? Now, obviously, he pitched just as well or maybe better. The club played better, which is, has a lot to do with winning loss records. So, Flanny in that era, uh, you, know, you know, and then you had other guys. You know, it's funny. Uh, Tom Phoebus, who passed away, uh, what, probably about a year ago or so. Um, you know, I learned a slider. When he came up at the end of 66, he almost pitched three shutouts in a row. And I said, what is he doing that I can't do? So, I think you always did that. You know, Boddicker came up, Storm Davis was – Mike Flanagan had, let's see, Cy Old, that was me, Cy, Cy Now, which was him, and then Cy Future, was, which is Storm Davis. Scotty McGregor, you know, terrific guy, great pitcher. Um, you know, you just go down through the list of, of all the guys that, that I really admired. And the other thing was is that, um, you know, Pat Dobson came over. We, we all won 20 games in 71. Dopper was a very unique guy, great sense of humor. You know, very good pitcher. Uh, you know, he, he comes from San Diego. The only thing he did was come to a better ball club. And he pitched great. We all won 20 games. And, you know, what? the irony is we traded Frank uh, to the Dodgers after that year. McNally ends up 
Dave ends up maybe 13 and 17, Dobber 12 and 18, and they pitch better than the year before. We just didn't score any runs. So it's amazing. So a lot of times I think when, when I do broadcast, you talk about run support. It, it, you know, year in and year year out, it, 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 I, you want to be consistent. But at the end of the day, some years, maybe your record's a little bit better than it was supposed to be. Or maybe not as good as it should have been. Yeah, certainly, though, those names. I mean, clearly for about 20 years, maybe 25 years, the best pitching franchise in baseball. Well, you know, it's funny. We're talking about 83. If you go back, um, you know, we lose, what, two to one in the first game. Um, Lamar Hoyt beats us in the division series. He won the Cy Young Award. John Denny won the Cy Young Award in the World Series for the Phillies. We lose that game two to one. I think the White Sox only scored three runs in, in the four games. And then when we beat the Phillies, I think we out, I think it was 19 to three, they, out, they were outscored uh, Chicago. And then when you go to the World Series, I think we outscored the Phillies maybe 19 to eight, something like that. So pitching even in that, you know, even all the way from 66, when you, you know, the last three games were shutouts, you know, my first shutout ever, and then Bunker and, and, and Dave McNally in, in game four. And then you go all the way to, you know, through 1984, um, or at least through 83, when we win the last championship, the Orioles have won. Pitching was a big part of it. I asked Eddie this, and he said 83, but for all the, the time that you spent playing for the Orioles, what team do you think was the best team? Ooh. Well, you know, we didn't the, – the 69 team was pretty good, you know. I mean, uh, the, well, we won 109 games, and next year we won 108. You know, we we win that World Series game, and then in 71 we have the 420 game winners. Um, it's funny when you go back and look at, if you look at the 83 team and you look at, you know, again, I mean, Earl Weaver had left, but a lot of, you know, the Renneke, Lowenstein, Platoon, that Earl had formulated that. Um, you know, Earl was the guy that made Don Buford the best uh, leadoff guy in the American League, not as a second baseman, which is what we traded for, but a left fielder. So if you look at the 83 team, it was pretty good. I would like to think that I would have been on one of the teams because I didn't do anything in 83 other than <laughs> But, you know, um, it was a real good ball club. I mean, you, you know, you got Cal and you got Eddie, you got Kenny Singleton. You know, we didn't even mention singing. You know, you, you look at him, he on base percentage was close to 400. You know, you get the platoon, as I mentioned, you get 34 home runs and 124 RBIs out of your left fielders. Um, you know, you had Al Bumbry, who was a marvelous player. And, you know, I, I tweeted, I think Al turned, what, 64 a couple weeks ago or whatever. Maybe, I might be 62 or three or four. It doesn't really matter. But I, I'm a tough grader because I saw him come up at double A, what, he had 335 or six. Triple A, three, 335 or six, and then 337 his first year in the big league. So when they talk about their all young guys, what did you do in double A because I saw guys like Bumbley and do that. But if you look at if you look at that ball club, uh, you know, Tito Landrum comes over. He only had like 100 at-bats. He hits the big home run in the division series. You know, one of the great stories about the 83, and I don't know if you've talked to Rick Dempsey or he talked to you because Demper, Demper is Demper. But uh, probably in maybe late August, early September, we're on the bench and Demper is talking to Mike Flanagan. He says, you know, Plenty. He says, you know, this is not fair. And Mike says, what do, you, what do you mean it's not fair? He says, you know, I've never been hot for a day. I've never been hot for a week. I mean, I've never been hot for two weeks. I mean, I've never even had a good month. <laughs> and guess who's the MVP in the World Series? <laughs> Whether he deserved it or not, I, he, he was able to get it. No, I'm just, 
I always give Denver a hard time. But what, you know, he had four doubles. He only had 16 in the year. He had four, of them, four more in the World Series. Uh, and, uh, you know, a home run. And, you know, I mean, Eddie hit the big three home run in game five. I mean, it, it was just a real good team. I mean, if you go back to one of the great games, and I know a lot of people, and again, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to talk to Tippy, but the game where he ends up picking off the three guys in the 10th inning against Toronto, I don't know if you know how that started. That was the first inning that Lenny Sagata ever caught. And the first pitch, Cliff Johnson off of Tim Stoddard. Now, you got to understand, Stoddard's 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, Lenny's probably 5'7". It looks like Lenny's giving a sign. It looks like he's standing up behind home plate. And the first pitch that Stoddard throws, Cliff Johnson hits over the bullpen. So I think it was 4'4". Four, four, now it's 5'4". So they bring in Tippy. Uh, Dave Collins, I think, got on. You know, he used to steal 50 to 60 bases a year. He wants to steal because he could. And Tippy just throws over there and picks him off. Tippy did not have a good pickoff. That inning he did because they were so anxious to run against the Cicada. And then Lenny comes up and ends up hitting a game-winning home run in the bottom of the 10th inning. And that's kind of what the 83 team was all about. And um, so, you know, I, I, arguably there were a lot of good ball clubs. You know, I mean – it's hard not to say that the 97 Orioles may, may have been as good a team as anybody. They just, you know, uh, Armando Benitez disease, you know, where he threw the three run home run to Marquise Grissom. I was sitting behind the dugout in the second row. I wanted to charge them out because I couldn't believe that he threw that pitch, a hanging slider. He's thrown a hundred miles per hour, but you know, so a lot of good ball clubs and it's, it's the, the Oriole fans have had a lot of special teams to be able to watch over the years. And they've been very supportive. And 98 wins in 97, wire-to-wire -wire, uh, season, uh, and really uh, good pitching, great bullpen, maybe one of the best bullpens of all time. Uh, Jim, I do want to ask you about your transition into broadcasting. When did you know? I mean, everyone always knows you as a, a guy who, who is, you know, knows the game in and out. But when did you know you wanted to make that leap when you were finally done playing into broadcasting? Well, actually, in 1978, um, uh, Matt Morella was Reggie Jackson's uh, agent. He called me. He said, listen, the Yankees and the Red Sox are going to have a one-game playoff. ABC called me. They said, would you be interested in, in, in broadcasting if the Yankees win? So I actually watched that playoff game. Um, we were building a house, and I had rented, rented Tommy Chopin's house. It looked like a uh, kind of like an antique store because we had all our furniture in this little house in Timonium. And I gave him money to go buy a house in Florida. So we could actually live there. And I had my suitcase on the bed. And I don't know if you remember that game, but the Red Sox had an early 2 nothing lead. And uh, Mike Torres, who actually is one of our teammates, won 20 games for us and then was part of the Reggie Jackson, uh, Kenny Holtzman trade, went out to Oakland. And eventually he's pitching for the Red Sox. And Bucky Dent comes on and he throws him a fastball and he has a three-run home run. So now all of a sudden I got that suitcase out. I start packing a little bit because, I, you know, I'm only going to Kansas City to do the playoffs with, as it turned out, the Yankees and, and Kansas City, uh, if the Yankees win. So, you know, it's 3-2, 4-2, 5-2, and then it's 5-3, 5-4, and then Gossage comes in and gets the, the Red Sox out in the ninth inning. I think he got Yaz and uh, Jim Rice, two Hall of Famers. Maybe, I don't think he got Fisk out, but he got him out. Yankees win, and I go to work with Howard Cosell and uh, Keith Jackson in um, – in, uh, in Kansas City. And I actually borrowed uh, Howard Cosell's jacket. You know, humble Howard kind of leaned over, but he wore like a 43 or a 44 long. And, you know, we had those gold ABC jackets. So I had an extra one. Uh, he had an extra one because Howard always, always, Howard always traveled with two co coats. So anyway, I go there and that's, that's kind of when I first, uh, you know, did the game. And 
you know, how, uh, Keith Jackson said, Whoa, you'll know by the third inning whether you have it or you don't. So I'm doing wow. the third wow. inning. Going, do I have it or do I don't? And Howard would actually make me come up and watch the National League playoffs and he would add, young man, they're talking too much. This is regurgitation. And, you know, he would go through his Howard Cosell stuff and all that. And, um, so that's how I got into broadcasting. So I, you know, so the years we weren't in the playoffs or the, the World Series, so 79, we lost to the Pirates, but went to the World Series, you know, in seven games, great World Series, even though it ended poorly. In fact, we never, never ended well against the Pirates because they were two seven-game World Series, but really well played. Uh, didn't do the game. I did the playoffs in 80. No, no, no broadcasting in 79. 81, I did the World Series with uh, Keith and Howard and then Al Michaels out in California. In fact, I did the Fernando Valenzuela game, and, you know, he was the talk of the baseball world. I mean, marvelous pitcher out of Mexico. If he pitches a shutout in game three of the 81 World Series against the Yankees, he would have been the youngest guy to ever pitch a shutout in the World Series. So I was silently – I had my pom-poms when he gave up. <laughs> so anyway, uh, 81, 82, we lost on the last day of the year. Um that I went out into the playoffs with uh, Keith Jackson and, and Earl because Earl had retired. So, and you know, Earl, Earl, there's no seven second delay in broadcasting. So, <laughs> you know, and, and then Earl would, you know, it's funny, he couldn't reach the telestrator because his arms weren't long enough. They had to put risers. So, uh, it was, I mean, I'm not making fun of him, but it, that's the truth. And um, he would always say, Dennis Lynn was a producer. And, he would say, Earl, should you bunt? Earl would go, I wouldn't bunt. He, he didn't realize you had to do the talk back on your box. Uh, you know, so I would <laughs> so I was, so I, you know, so I did that in, uh, you know, in 82. We're in the World Series in 83. And then Tigers started out 35 and 5. And um, in 1984, the pennant race was over after the first 40 games. And, uh, you know, I did, I actually had a good spring. We were all, nobody pitched well in the month of April. And uh, they asked me to, because I'd heard my knee in the World Series, do you want to go on the disabled list or do you want to go be a broadcaster? So I went and became a broadcaster. So that's really how it started, just uh, doing the playoffs in 1978, hoping that the Yankees would win. Otherwise, I would have watched it, played golf, uh, go go crabbing with Frank uh, Cashin. The only time I ever went crabbing was the day that uh, Bucky Dent hits the home run. I was out on the uh, on Middle River at about 7 o'clock in the morning. I don't even eat crabs. And um, I came home, watched the game, and ended up uh, getting into broadcasting. Speaking of broadcasting, how did the Naked Gun gig come along? They called. They said, do you want to be in a uh, movie? They're having a broadcasting scene. It's a very important game. Queen Elizabeth's going to be there. Um, uh, you're going to be with five other broadcasters. You're going to have your own psychologist, which I wish kind of sometimes wish that, especially the last two seasons we had had in Baltimore, Joyce Brothers had been up there, you know, when, when things aren't going as well as it did. No, they said, listen, come out to the coast, $7,500 to do the movie, first-class ticket. I have a friend, uh, Teddy Grossman, who's now 89, but, you know, he li his brother lives on the beach in Santa Monica. I love to play volleyball. We'll go biking. We'll go to the movies. We'll go to dinner. You can do the movie. So we got to the studios about 8 o'clock in the morning. They'd still be shooting if, if Tim McCarver, who's in the broadcasting scene, didn't have to go do the Dodgers and the Mets. He was broadcasting for the Mets. So he got out of there about four o'clock because it was one more take, one more take. And of course, you know, you think about, uh, you know, uh, Kurt Gowdy was there. I'm hugging Kurt Gowdy, who, you know, his, his son would be our executive producer, not only at Wide World of Sports, but also baseball. You know, Kurt was one of the Hall of Fame broadcasters. 
uh, Dick Vitale, who whispers at lunch, by the way. He only yells on the air. I couldn't hear him. I mean, that's, and my hearing, I mean, this is not now when I can't hear. So my, so my wife says, um, uh, you know, you had uh, Mel Allen, who I listened to when I was a kid, did the Yankee games. I mean, you know, you had a cast of characters. And like I said, it was a big game. And, you know, the movie, I, I love it. People go, yeah, I love your movie. I go, yes, my yeah, right. So that's how it started. You know, I mean, it was, it's not like George Lopez, where apparently I'm a bobblehead. I've never seen that. But people say, yeah, I saw in George Lopez, where, you know, he wants his son, Max, I think, to, to, to play baseball. So he goes into his office, and he's got a Steve Garvey, a Rod Carew, and a Jim Palmer bobblehead. And um, he gets inspiration to talk to his son by talking to us. And we, of course, answer bobbling our heads and all that, you know. <laughs> Uh, on a much more hyper-local level, even though he did do many national broadcasts, when it comes to broadcasting, uh, your relationship with Chuck Thompson. I mean, I've heard over the years you talk about Chuck, of course, going back to you know me growing up and listening to Chuck Thompson's greatest hits and things like that. Uh, but uh, just what did Chuck mean to the Orioles? Well, he, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you're a, a Baltimore sports fan, he did the Colts. And when I got to Baltimore, I mean, the Colts were one of the greatest teams in the NFL, uh, you know, with the Unitas and – I mean, I actually, after we won the World Series, we came back, um, and they were working out, at, you know, at Memorial Stadium. And I'm watching the Unitas throw these 15-yard, uh, you know, outs to uh, Raymond Berry, and I'm going, it's like 95 miles per hour on the corner. I mean, you know, he hadn't made his cut, and the ball's on its way. I mean, you know, and, and then I'd go, I'd go to the games. I mean, what do you do on Sunday? You know, it, you know they, they sold out. I, I mean, I went to the championship game in 1966. Joe Rash, the Rash Field downtown Baltimore, a friend of mine was good friends with me. And um, Barry Robinson, his lawyer, said, hey, do you want to go to the championship game? Uh, but you're going to have to pay the $5.50. I said, $5.50? Underneath the, uh, you know, underneath the, uh, the overhang of the snows or it rains, you, you won't get wet? I said, sure, sure, I want to go. And then the Colts ended up losing, but it was a great game. The Packers got an early lead, and, and I just took them down 10-7, and then, Billy Davis, who just passed away, you know, the, the Hall of Fame uh, defensive, he blindsided him and he fumbled and people are booing Johnny Unitas and I'm going, it's Johnny Unitas, you don't boo. Ah, we're not going to get our tickets. They were $5.50, the only eight games. I go, I'll take them, I'll take them. I raised my hand because, you know, you, when you lived in Baltimore, but, you know, Chuck did those games and did our games. Chuck was very fair. I mean, um, he was, you know, had the fabulous voice. When I was hurt, you know, I just – you know, when I was hurt a couple of, you know, 67 and 68, I was on the disabled list, you know, the two year, year and a half I really missed. So I got to listen to Chuck more than I really wanted to, but I, I don't mean that derogatorily, but we used to play golf. We used to, you know, he was one of the big, big guys. We used to go down to Hilton Head after the season was over. We have eight guys and we'd rent a condos and we'd play golf every day and all that. We got to Pine Ridge, we used to have an eight some, uh, and Chuck lived very close to Pine Ridge up on Delaney Valley Road. So he was a great guy. You know, it's funny. I was listening to a game once and Danny Ford, uh, playing right field who actually is on the 83 team and Chuck never criticized people. I mean, you know, Reggie went around from first to third one day or, or he was maybe going to third, came around uh, second base and did one of those half slides and then went back to second. And <laughs> Chuck on the radio says, there's not enough mustard uh, to cover this young man. I mean, that was, that was about as critique, you know, as, as uh, negative as Chuck Thompson's going to be, but Danny Ford loses a ball on a Sunday afternoon. Noon in right field, and the ball drops, and you know, bright day. It was, you know, sometimes that happens to outfielders. And um, <laughs> Chuck goes, uh, For those of you, you know, Danny Ford just, Danny Ford just, I can't even do his voice, it's so deep, uh, just dropped the ball in right field, you know, for a two base error. 
Uh, and you're probably wondering what, what Danny Ford and Michael Jackson uh, have in common. And I think Bill O'Donnell was doing the games where he said, what, what is that, Chuck? He said, they both wear a glove on their left hand and nobody knows why. Oh, that, 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 well, that was it. That was Chuck. That was Chuck at his worst, you know, being critical. You know, I think he'd probably just seen enough. So, no, Chuck was the, he was the greatest. And, um, uh, you know, it's funny, but he was a very private guy. Uh, I had a, a late friend who was a real estate guy, Hank Lynch, who was good friends with Chuck. And when Chuck's uh, wife rose, and you had to understand, when you, you know, when we were in all those World Series and playoffs, we'd, we'd have team parties and, you know, all the, the broadcasters and their wives would come and you know, whatever. And when Rose passed away, I wrote him a nice note. And I'm riding in the car with Frank, uh, Hank Lynn's down in spring training. And I said, you know, I said, Chuck's really a private guy. And he says, yeah, but he said, you know, he, he has a kind of a shell. And I said, I, I mean, I didn't expect him to respond. But when I wrote him a note about Rose passing away, he said, I said, he never really mentioned that or he never even acknowledged it. He said he keeps it in his glove compartment. And I'm, but this was Chuck. So, you know, maybe as good as he was, you know, there, he had that facade that he didn't get overly emotional. I mean, he was such a profession. And if you, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, now they're playing all the old time of games. If you listen to a radio broadcast of the nineties or the 66 world series, it was Chuck and Vince Scully because the local radio, you know, television guys or radio guys did it. Now, of course, it's nationally broadcast and so on and so on. But so, you know, um, Chuck was one of us. And, you know, I was so happy that he got in the, you know, the, the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. And uh, because, I mean, this is why, you, you, you know, when we get back to playing, we got to make sure that it happens, not because of money, because fans, you know, fans live for the voices of you guys and, and, and the Chuck Thompsons of the world. I mean, that's, you know, I, I told Vince Scully once, I said, you know, I, I used to put me to sleep. I said, don't take this bad. I said, but when I was a kid, I used to always listen to Dodger radio and, you know, sometimes I, you know, did my homework and all that. And you had su such a melodious voice, Dodger baseball. <laughs> and he started laughing. He goes, you're not the first person that told me that I put him to sleep, but it's funny. You used to, you know, I used to go to Dodger stadium and I'm sure they, you know, you know, the same thing in Baltimore, people would actually have their transistor radio on with, you know, with, with not a headset, but ear earphones to listen to Chuck Thompson. He was, he was that good. And, as is Vince Scully and all the great broadcasting. Uh, what um, I guess I guess the last one for me is how is your memory as good as it is? Because you can go back and relay sequences and different games and things like that that, oh. that I think most people have long forgotten. Like how how do you how your, how's your recall as good as it is? Well, sometimes I mean I it, it, I don't remember. I mean I my I remember most things, but there are you know. There are really good, like, I didn't realize this till somebody tweeted it or something about, I, you know, like opening days. I guess I'm, I just saw it the other day, five and one with a 140 ERA. Now, I would never know that. Now, I knew I pretty much pitched well on opening day, um, mainly because if you won 20 games, you know, and I played on all those great teams, you won 20 games, eight out of nine years. Every year that you started the next year, they took the 20 games away. You're starting from scratch. It's, you know, like, you know, you're a chef. Hey, everything great on Friday night or you own a restaurant. Everybody comes. Everybody's happy. Food was great. Chef had a good night. You know, and then on Saturday, the food critic comes and things aren't going. You know, chef had an argument with his wife. The waiter, you know, was late, blah, 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 blah. So I've kind of learned all that stuff. But, I mean, I remember a one nothing win in Milwaukee on opening day because 
um, they, it snowed and they had to, the game was half an hour late because they had to get the snow off the, the bleachers in center field because of the glare. And, you know, and they got a leadoff guy and one nothing lead in the ninth inning on the road. And uh, the guy tries to bunt Charlie Moore and Dempsey doubles him up into, you know, to, to second base. And next guy flies out and you win one nothing on the road. You're going, how did that happen against the Brewers? I mean, I'm talking Yount, Molitor, and Carmen Thomas and those guys. Uh, I won a game against Ferguson Jenkin, who's another Hall of Famer, won nothing in Baltimore when he pitched for the Red Sox. I don't remember one thing about that game. Now, I can remember when Fergie beat me in uh, Texas 2-1, to one, he, you know, and every time he needed an out, Demper would come up and you throw him that slider and he'd swing with one hand. But, I, you know, it's just, I don't know. I, I, um, you know, things, I, you just remember certain things. You don't remember everything. And, you know, the problem is, that I've found is now that they have retro sheet, you can't really lie as much. <laughs> <laughs> they go back and look at every box score and every game and, you know, that uh, you, you can. So, uh, at the end of the day, um, I mean, I remember a lot of things, but I mean, I had a, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, when you, when Bill Stack had called me, who's calling right now because he didn't answer his phone earlier, uh, said, we're going to talk about 83. I said, oh, I probably need to go back and revisit that. Um, you know, but, um, you know, the other thing is you guys will, you know, you know this, or you, you'll, you'll find this when you broadcast, you better be prepared. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Greg Maddox walked up to me and he says, you know, I want to be like you and Don Sutton. I said, what is that? He goes, I want to play golf all day long, and I just want to come to the ballpark and, you know, broadcast a three-hour game. I said, Craig, I said, what do you make, $16, $17 million? I said, I want to be like you. <laughs> you know? So people, I think, don't realize, you know, whether, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm very fortunate to work for Madison. You know, uh, Don D'Agostino is, is, is as good a producer as anybody I've ever seen. Tim Walbert left, so I you know we're going to have a new director. But we have great people, from cameramen to the people that do – you know, do all our, do all our stuff and, you know, all the, the, the off the field person, the personnel. So, and I learned that at ABC when I worked all those years at, at ABC when, you know, where, you know, you had your researchers, you know, Steve Hurt used to write the Elias with his brother and all that. He used to do notes. So we used to call it the, uh, the script because that's what Howard Cosell would read, read pretty much when it was <laughs> the games, you know, he didn't have any, any unique thoughts, you know, ah, this is a game though. So anyway, the, the end of the day, um, you know, broadcasting is about being prepared. And I don't think it's any different than playing. I mean, in, in a sense, I mean, more people, I mean, you know, I was reading, you know, the, the, the worst things that ever happened in the broadcasting booth, uh, you know, or whatever that people were talking about. I wasn't on the list, even though I'm sure I, I, I have my moments, you know, when you forget that it's, you know, you think the inning's over or you forget how many outs there are or whatever, but, or, you know, you, you have that mind blank where you're working with, Gary Thorne, or you go, you know, uh, yeah, and, uh, what's his name? You remember back then? And you know, <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's, it's broadcasting, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a great gig, but I never really thought, to kind of do, do a 360, never thought that when I did that playoff game and when I was, what, in 1978, when I was 33, that I'd still be broadcasting when I'm, you know, 74 years old. But I think my mind and the fact that you're willing to do the work has a lot to do with that. It's only 35 years later, so you made a pretty good career out of it, Jim. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I used to, when I did the playoffs um, in 1988, I'd go down and play volleyball early in the morning. I'd stay with my friend, the stuntman, and then, you know, games were 505 or 508 out there. And so I could go biking and playing volleyball in the morning and do a little bit of work. And they'd pick me up at 12 o'clock, go to the ballpark, and, you know, you do the game and, and whatever. And so 
the Mets and the Dodgers, we, I do the game with Al Michaels and Tim McCarver and uh, uh, Lenny. And they call him a leather back because he'd been there for 50 years. His back was like leather because he'd been in the sun so much. He goes, um, he said, you know, I, I thought you and Al Michaels and uh, uh, McCarver were off last night. Dodgers lose three to two. And I said, really? And I said, God, I thought we did a nice job. I said, we, I thought we covered everything. It was a good game. And he goes, no, nah, there's something, something off, something going. So Dodgers win nine to four the next night. I come down to play volleyball. He says, God, you guys were great. And I realized it was because his team won. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so let's hope that the Orioles, <laughs> guys, <laughs> that the Orioles are taking this time to regroup <laughs> And they're going to have a much better 2020 when we get to play. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, it's been a couple of tough years, and you, you go through those things. Um, but I kind, you know, I, I'm, I was, you know, once I got through the, the the back surgery, I was really looking forward to the season because you know you're going to see a lot of new faces. You know, it's it, it's funny. I you get to the Hall of Fame. I started in 18. Nobody knew I was going to be any good. You don't know what Austin Hayes is going to do. You know, John Means has a great rookie year. You know, now what does he have to do? He's got to figure it out again. I mean, it certainly looks like he's certainly capable of doing that. So it's going to be a little more difficult, I guess, you know, because it's not like you're coming out of spring training. You know, it's in a very tough division. You know, the Yankees are certainly <laughs> – they've kind of, you know, beefed up their team and, and whatever. They'll probably actually get healthier because of this, you know, Paxton was going to be out and Severino's gone for the year. But it's going to be a, it's going to be a nice season. Again, and we just don't know what it's going to look like. Well, Jim, I, I know Jeff feels this way. We can't wait to uh, see you hopefully soon and work with you hopefully very soon. So that was so much fun doing this. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'll be the guy with the mask. <laughs> Easily <laughs> identifiable then. Yeah, well, well that, that, yeah. You know, I don't have any underlying conditions now that I got rid of the shingles that I had last summer, but uh, just the age factor. But uh, I, am re I, I just hope that they, you know, I hope they get a settlement, but I just really hope that they get a little more of a handle on this COVID-19 because, there's, you know, it, it obviously affects baseball, but we know how much it, uh, the meaning it has for, for everybody all across this country and really the world. So let's hope that they get that strained out a little bit as well as they can. But anyway, great being with you guys. I'm looking forward to maybe a little, little uh, in, 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 in July. In July. Sounds good to us. Jim Palmer, the Hall of Famer. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Learning is important year-round, and that is why we're excited to offer our fans the Summer Slugger program. Summer Slugger is a fun, interactive, online course that uses the game of baseball to help kids ages 8 to 11 maintain their math and literacy skills during the summer months. Summer Slugger is a continuous and engaging learning experience that uses the game of baseball to prepare students of all backgrounds to enter the next school year on track. To learn more and register with code Orioles, visit summerslugger.com slash Orioles. And Jeff, uh, great stuff with Palmer covering all that ground. I love the question about, uh, about how he recalls everything, it seems. And uh, I don't think he gave us a full answer on that, but it is weird. But to a younger generation who probably only know the main color commentator on Orioles broadcast after all these many decades, I think it's important to kind of put this into perspective. Uh, Palmer comes up in 1965 at the age of 19. He goes six and he goes five and four with a 3.72 ERA. Gets in 27 games that year. The next year he beats Sandy Koufax in the World Series at the age of 20. And he goes 15 and 10 with a sub 3.5 ERA. 
His last major league game came in 1984 at the age of 38 in between three Cy Young awards, a couple of second place finishes in the Cy Young race. Also seven 20 win seasons, 268 and 152 with a 286 ERA spanning from the middle 60s to the middle 80s. And you mentioned it. Uh, he was a winning pitcher in three separate World Series in three separate decades, Jeff, in three separate decades. And I believe he's the only Oriole to play for all three World Championship clubs. And, and he played for all the pennant winning clubs as well. So uh, that's, you know, a lot of guys were obviously big parts of multiple Orioles pennant winning teams. Okay. We know Rooks and Frank and Boog and, and guys like that, Eddie, Cal. Uh, but the reality is, uh, Palmer's the only one who's the common denominator in all the pennant winning clubs and all the world championship clubs. And, and to me, that's, that's something. Here's the other thing you have to consider. I mean, Jim Palmer will always say that he played on a lot of really good teams and he talked about, you know, the Orioles from when he got there to when he finished up, you know, you're talking about the, the best team in, in baseball. If you, if you look at it over that entire stretch, but how good would some of those Orioles pitching staffs have been? if they didn't have Jim Palmer there. I mean, Scotty McGregor went and talked about it in the, in the podcast that we had with him, that we may not have had sabermetrics, but we did have Palmer. And That's a great he point. came from a different era where pitchers were there watching the games. They broke things down in a different fashion because they didn't have all the gadgets that you have today. So Palmer's influence is not only what he accomplished individually, which puts him as the best pitcher in Orioles history and a Hall of Famer. No one doubts that. But I wonder just how good would some of those Orioles teams have been? How some of those pitchers would have pitched if Palmer had not been there with them, guiding them, giving them lessons, and helping them develop and improve? And you hear stories about that all the time. And you know, especially you know, the one that he told about Mike Flanagan as well. I mean, that was, you know, an example of just how you talk to Earl Weaver, you try and get Flanagan to believe in himself, and he goes something like 13-1 and one the rest of the season. I mean, Palmer's impact was far from just the way that he pitched individually. Yeah, there's no question about it. And um, just an anchor, I mean, an ace uh, for the staff for, for, you know, really a couple of decades. And it is uh, a Hall of Fame career, uh, I think, you know, and I grew up listening to him, obviously, on television and watching him and certainly has uh, impacted my baseball mind many times over in that way. I, I think, Jeff, as we analyze people as broadcasters, it's just hard to find people who come across that knowledgeable and that honest. And, you know, he mentioned Chuck wouldn't criticize. Uh, I think you would agree with me. It's hard as a non-player. It's hard as a former player to criticize. I mean, that, that is almost – it just doesn't happen today – and Palmer's known as someone who's just going to call it as he sees it. And I think it's refreshing. Easier said than done. I mean, I've known players who have not liked some of the things they've heard they've heard. They're not obviously watching it live. Um, but uh, to me, that's, you know, that's sort of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what's, what I see is, is refreshing and it's unique in many ways nowadays. And, uh, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed watching that part of his, uh, his life and career on television. And that's the thing about Jim Palmer is that when he criticizes or he says something that maybe a player doesn't like, think about who it's coming from. This is coming from the best pitcher in Orioles history. This is coming from somebody who, and I know that there is a tendency when you look at the Ford Frick winners to pick play-by-play -play broadcasters, right. but somebody that's had a career not only as a Hall of Fame pitcher, but as a Hall of Fame broadcaster really as well, 
he can kind of say what he wants to say because he's not only had a great deal of success, he not only is a key part of Orioles history in multiple facets, but he's somebody that has seen the game evolve over the course of multiple decades and has adapted and has grown and as, you know, as both a player and as a broadcaster over that stretch. So he offers a certain degree of authority that I think very few play-by-play broadcasters or analysts or just anybody can claim. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It was a really fun conversation. And I'm going to call it the definitive Jim Palmer podcast interview. I mean, I think it was on Buster Oldies recently and some others. Well, uh, I'll say this is the definitive uh, Jim Palmer podcast interview. Uh, hopefully it lives in uh, it lives for all time, wherever fine podcasts are downloaded or watched also in our case. Uh, Jeff, a lot of fun. Uh, we have some great guests coming up next week. We're not ready to announce them yet, but obviously keep checking us out at Orioles.com slash podcast and wherever podcasts are downloaded. Uh, we have some cool on deck uh, shows coming up. If you're not checking those out, uh, Thursday at 4.15, Sundays at noon for uh, some of the best Orioles games ever to rewatch and relive. And I come on with the pregame show uh, for all of those. So uh, catch up on those. And then they're out there on social media all day if you can't catch them live. So uh, the on deck show, we're having a lot of fun putting that together. Uh, so a, a lot of great content is out there. There's no question about it, and you've been doing a great job with the On Deck show. I watch all the time as I also watch some of these Orioles games back on different social media platforms. And, you know, it's not only just us, but Melanie Newman with the grind talking to current Orioles players. I mean, we're trying to, to find different ways to, to keep everybody engaged and ready for Orioles baseball whenever uh, it will return. Uh, and that includes some Orioles trivia as well, presented by our friends at um, – Pepsi Zero Sugar, which uh, Melanie hosts on Tuesdays. I'm getting to do my first one uh, coming up, and I'm super excited because maybe if I could be a baseball broadcaster, then I would have liked to have been Alex Trebek or Pat Sajak. So you, you, this is giving me a chance to do that. You have Pat Sajak written all over you, Jeff. So uh, big Orioles fan, by the way. <laughs> Pat, if you're watching or listening, we love you. We can't wait to see you at the ballpark. Uh, all right, Jeff, uh, we'll be back in, in a couple of days with some more uh, – Orioles Magic, the podcast. Be well, be safe, everyone. Thanks for being with us.